only the second installment so far in this new series about overcoming, always overcoming. As we mentioned right off the bat, we can't overcome anything in our own strength, in our humanness. So we're looking at how God, through us, overcomes in our life about things that we struggle with. Today, every day, I'm allowing Christ to overcome my old nature. I'm going to begin with this first one because it dives right into what I want to talk about today from Paul in Colossians. I like the New Living Translation in this one. And let me just read it to you as you let it pour over you here. He says, speaking, of course, to some people who had been uh, not walking with God, and then they had started walking with God, and he's noticing a difference between the old nature and the new nature. Paul says, Don't lie to each other, for you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. We've seen this picture before. We see it several times in both the Old and the New Testaments as this picture of a nature being analogous to a garment that you can put on. Where else have we seen that picture? Well, for one thing, we see it in Isaiah, one of the prophets that we met a couple of weeks ago in our winter Bible study. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Now, I've got a brother-in-law who's a mechanic, and if there's any place that you need to go if you want to see what a filthy rag looks like, you can go into his garage. Pretty nasty stuff. And Isaiah is saying all the way back as a preface to what Paul starts to say in the New Testament, that our righteous acts, things that we think of as being self-righteous, anything we would try to come up with on our own, are like filthy rags in comparison to the righteousness of God, in fact. And then look at what Paul says, referring to this same concept. Clothe yourself, he says then, with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I had mentioned this several different times as I have tried to portray what the gospel message does for us Because of what Christ did for us, it's almost as though he climbs down off the cross, takes off his own cloak of righteousness, removes our sinful, filthy rag clothing, and puts his robe right over the top of us. That's what happens in the gospel message. Because there's nothing we can do on our own to become righteous. But he does that for us, and he does so freely. Clothe yourself, so says Paul then, with the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can't make this garment ourselves. Every time you look at Paul's writing in the New Testament, it's like he's afraid somebody's going to misunderstand him, and so he goes into an explanation. Every time he uses this term about righteousness and being like a garment, he starts to explain that this is not something we can do in our own strength. It's only because of the grace of God that we have this wonderful garment, so we can change our nature, because God's the one who's making the change for us. Then look at 2 Corinthians, also from Paul. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. They have a new nature. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. I was listening to Pastor Mike's message on one of the two Sundays I was gone, and he preached about sin and about how we can become a new creature in Jesus Christ if we recognize what that sin is, and then we can repent from that, turn from it 180 degrees and face a different way. I'm going to bring up that same point today and illustrate it slightly differently than Mike did, but 
Great message, by the way. And thank you to all the elders, because I've listened to every one of those things uh, again a second time from the presentations from our winter Bible study from our prophets. They did such a great job. So Jesus had been telling his disciples something. He was preparing them for a great loss that they were about to experience. All of us in this room have experienced some form of loss. If you're a youngster, maybe the loss has been a pet hamster. If you're older, maybe the loss has been much more significant in terms of being a human being that you have lost. Maybe it's a parent or a grandparent. But Jesus knew that these disciples would be experiencing a tremendous amount of grief. And in preparation for that, he says, by the way, I'm going to promise you something. Let me read what he promised them. In John 14, he says, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. What does that say about who Jesus is? He's our advocate, and he'll send another advocate who is the Spirit also of God, so it's part of the three persons in the triune Godhead, the Holy Spirit, and sometimes we'll even say the Spirit of Christ, because it's God's Spirit, it's Christ's Spirit. He'll send them another advocate who will, and this is a great promise, who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. That's Jesus' own words to his disciples. And I can imagine that it wasn't until after his resurrection and probably after the Holy Spirit came upon them in that room as they waited and then we saw that the Spirit came down in the form of some flames and all this stuff happened that they realized, oh, that's what he was talking about. I think it took a little time for them to finally really comprehend what Jesus had been trying to prepare them about. And Jesus said in Matthew, truly I say to you, unless you are, and I like this translation because it says converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that word for convert means to take on a new form completely. Some of you are old enough to remember the conversion vans in the 70s. They were great big in Phoenix, Arizona when I was growing up. You could take them down into South Phoenix where you get these conversion kits and you'd tell them what you wanted in your conversion van. It was just an old panel van, basically. But by the time they got finished with it, oh man, shag carpet, a sink. It was too cool. So he says, unless you become like something completely different, unless you become converted or changed and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Joy and Callie and I had more questions than answers, but we had a great discussion about what does it mean to have this childlike faith? What is it about a child that causes Jesus to do that? And I would just pose that question to you and say, at lunch today, this is your homework, ask this question of other people and say, what did Jesus mean? What do you think he meant when he said, unless you can become like a child? Talk about that, because it's incredible to me to hear some of the things bubbling up about what they think being a child is like. For one thing, they're very honest. You know, I have two grand boys, and I quote them several times, but they're very honest. And one of the things that my grandsons will point out to me are not just the good things. They'll point out things that they see that might not be so well. Uh, one of them told me, he said, ooh, Peapaw, your breath stinks. <laughs> I said, well, I better go brush my teeth then. But kids notice things, and they're so truthful. There's no shellac. There's no varnish on it. I mean, they're just, what you see is what you get with young children. That may be a part of what Jesus meant. I think there's a, a sense of trust, too, that probably goes into that. I used to be able to get 
Katie, my firstborn, when she was about one year old and she was just standing, and I would put both her little feet in my right hand, and I'd say, okay, here we go. And I'd, go, and I'd put her right up, you know, like they do if you're in gymnastics or something. But she had no fear. She'd just stand up in my hand like, this is normal. <laughs> and I especially liked doing that when Joy wasn't with me and I was at the grocery store. <laughs> because I could hold her up high enough that she could look over at the next aisle over. And I'm sure that there are probably some shopping carts that ran into other things as they would look up and go. <laughs> that was real trust. Real trust. So Jesus is saying we have to have a childlike trust and an honesty to be able to see what God is truly like. And the Holy Spirit, this is the good news, folks. The Holy Spirit is there to help us bring that out and shows us what truth is so that he will bring forth that childlike trust and the honesty for us to be honest with ourselves about what we see and how we respond to it. I liked this. It was really neat. I haven't read the book yet, but I saw a couple of good quotes, which has made me curious. The author's name is Susan Schaefer McCauley, and she gives an analogy about somebody hiking through a forest. I saw this on a blog. She says, a storm sets in as you're walking through this great forest, and you're relieved to see a hut in the clearing up ahead. A light shines from the window, and smoke curls from the chimney. You run to the door hoping to find shelter, and you knock. No answer. You call. Hello, is anybody there? No response. You go to the window to look in. Ah, what a relief, she says. The hut is occupied. Well, how do you know? There's a fire burning in the fireplace. There's a kettle bubbling merrily over it, probably with some wonderful homemade soup of some sort. The table is set for supper, and a freshly baked pie sits in the center of the table with steam still coming from it. And Macaulay asks, using scientific observation, what do you know about this setting? Well, you know that somebody lives there. Because even though no one appears to be home or in that room at the moment, somebody had to build the hut. Somebody had to make the fire. Somebody had to put the water in the kettle and put it on the fire. Somebody had to set the table, and somebody had to bake that pie. <laughs> Based on the evidence that you may assume that a person will come back soon because they're going to eat that fresh pie. <laughs> That's what she said scientific observation can do, especially to a child. If I start sharing that, I bet if I told that same story to my two grandsons, I would say, what does that mean? They'd probably both say, somebody lives there. Why is that? Because they get it. They have childlike faith. They're honest about their observations. Amazingly, we as human beings tend to not be very honest sometimes about observations that I think should be fairly evident to us. Jesus plainly stated that he had come to seek and save the lost. And I think that if he had done that, he would have made it possible for us to be able to respond to him somehow. And I believe the rest of the Bible is clear that he does that. He's given us so much evidence that we can say, just as I didn't see the owner of that cabin, I can't see God, but I see all kinds of abundant evidence that God has laid a lot for us and has put it out there for us to enjoy. Jesus plainly said he'd come to seek and to save those who were lost, almost like wandering in the woods. It's hard to try to define what lost means. We use that as a Christianese word sometimes. But somebody who's just looking for some direction is lost. 
And some people are saying, I just, I need to know that I can count on something or somebody to give my life direction. And he says, I've come to give you that kind of direction. We tend to equate lost with being headed for another destination, and that's also very true. But I see people who are so directionless today, they're just without direction. They lack any sense of compass, moral compass. And Jesus says, I've come to give you true north. And what I like about the term that Mike brought out in his message about sin and repentance was that repentance means that you turn from facing one direction as you see one thing and you're not seeing anything back here behind me. And then you turn 180 degrees and you look in the opposite direction. Now I'm seeing something completely different. That's what repentance means. And so it's not so much a replacement of who you are, but a refacement of who you are. Now, I quoted another pastor on that. Rick Warren said that before I did. But I like the replacement, refacement thing because it's memorable. And I think it's true, too, because it's still you. If you're creative, if you play the violin and you love to play the violin like some of you kids are doing out there, and God saves you, chances are he's going to turn you into a fulfilled violinist because you're going to do it for the right motives and the right reason. And you're going to recognize, oh, even that is a gift from him. Music is a gift from him. He's the guy who created even sound waves and showed us how a vibrating string can bring joy to people's lives. And so you see the life differently because you've been looking over here and now you're looking over here and you see things differently. It's the same you, but it's a redeemed you and you're putting on the new nature. I think that's good to know because we don't have to become cookie cutters and look like everybody else. You're still you. And as the Holy Spirit brings out the best you that God wants for you, you're going to be a blessing to other people because you're going to reflect His glory. Some of you have driven across the Continental Divide. We've done that several times because we've made several trips back west and back over here. There's a point at which you can stand right at the top by a sign that says, you're at the Continental Divide. And if it rains on one side of where you're standing, the water's going to go off ultimately toward the Pacific Ocean. If it rains on the other side, guess which ocean it's going to go to? Don't anybody say the Dead Sea. <laughs> That'd be wrong. The Atlantic Ocean, because this is America after all. And so if you stand there and if you face one direction and you're looking west, then you can see everything west of the Continental Divide. But if you never looked behind you, you wouldn't even know that there's a whole eastern part of the country over there. And there's something about the divide of Jesus' name that tends to divide people. And sometimes it's controversial. Franklin Graham wrote a book about it. I read about it uh, 10, 12 years ago called The Name. And we sang about it, The Name of Jesus. He talked about how controversial that name is and that people are li literally willing to give their lives for that name, like that pastor did that I mentioned at communion. The Old Testament prophets had difficult but necessary truths because they were trying to help people see God for who He truly was. And as we look back into the Old Testament, if you have no other vantage point, if all you see are the difficult stories in the Old Testament, you might get one picture in your mind of what you think God might be like. What I see after the cross, looking back that direction, is how patient God was. Oh my goodness, so many times when He said, I've sent prophets to you again and again and again. They'd finally tear down the idols. They'd tear down the ashtoreth poles. All these things that the prophets told us about in our winter Bible study. And then very soon after that, they'd get some new leader and he too would start leading them astray. And they'd say, how long are you going to keep doing this? God is so patient. He wants to draw you to himself. Jesus even said that on his way into Jerusalem. Like a mother hen gathers the chicks under his wings. He wanted to be able to shelter them that way. God wants that. 
And it was because of people's waywardness and their sin that they could not see God for who He was. That was the blinders. They were sin-blinded, and they couldn't see what a loving God He truly is. They had difficult but necessary truths, including that one. I, I couldn't believe how much Mark Elwell embodied Jeremiah. But you could feel the weight from this weeping prophet and why he was weeping because he knew of the destruction that awaited Jerusalem. Well, one of the greatest causes of our distress in our lives, it's unresolved conflict. Any of us who have had to walk around with unresolved conflict for any length of time knows it's stress-producing. And if in your job you have some unresolved conflict, maybe there's a coworker and you just can't seem to get on the same page, you can go for one, two days, three days, and pretty soon it starts to stretch out, and you're thinking, we've got to get down to the bottom of this thing because this unresolved conflict is just creating such tension and anxiety. Well, I think one of the greatest unresolved conflicts that we need to, to resolve is an inner conflict. It's that inner war that we have that I mentioned last week. To live with inner conflict here are some things you can't do. Let me give you some can'ts and some cans. You can't allow yourself to be led by your feelings. I think the scripture is pretty clear about that. Uh, I quoted from Jeremiah who said, the heart of man is wicked beyond description. Your feelings lie to you all the time. They really will. And if you go only by your feelings, that's eh, not necessarily helpful. There was an Elvis Presley song going way back talking about basically Hey, how can it be wrong if it feels so right? Now, there's several other songs, I'm sure, that are more current than Elvis that have that same basic concept behind it. But I'll tell you why. It's because your emotions lie to you. They're temporary. That's why you can't trust it. Something can feel really right at the moment, and it can be terribly destructive. Every emotion is temporary, whether good or bad. You go to Disneyland. You're happy. There's Goofy. What's there not to be happy about? I mean, life is good. But that's not going to last. You can't carry Disneyland feeling with you forever. Uh, Peter, on the Mount of Transfiguration, wanted to hang on to the good feelings. He goes, hey, let's go camping. Let's set up three tabernacles, see three tents, and we'll just stay up here for a while. And Jesus says, no, nah, we've got more things to do, and it's not, some of them are not going to be pleasant, but we've still got to go down to the valley, Pete. Every emotion is temporary. Football players will tell you that. They'll win a Super Bowl, and three days later, they're back looking at the film, trying to figure out what they can do better by the next game they play together because the feeling is gone from the elation of the celebration of winning, and they say, but life's not over. Life goes on. I have more to do yet. I heard Tom Landry say that in an Athletes in Action banquet when I was about that big, and he said, here's a film of us winning this one big championship, and he said, it lasted two days. The feeling lasted two days and it was on to the next thing. Every emotion is temporary, and therefore, it's unreliable as a gauge for why we ought to just gauge ourselves with that. Have you heard this before? I have. I just had a piece about it. I just had a piece about it. That's good. We ought to have a piece about something if God gives us that, but we need to be discerning about where that piece is coming from. What about Jonah? Jonah the prophet told us two weeks ago, yeah, he had a piece he was in the bottom of a boat and went to sleep. He was peaceful enough to go to sleep. He was heading in the opposite direction from where God called him. Short time later, he's in the belly of a big fish. But I had a piece about it. I've actually had people tell me in ministry years ago, not, not here in this church, but I had somebody say, you know, I just felt like our marriage wasn't really going anywhere. And I, I kind of started falling for this other person. I just sort of had a piece that maybe it was okay for me to dissolve my marriage. Yeah. You know, you, you have no words. 
That's like the prophets in the Old Testament when Israel would do the things that they would do. I'm sure that these prophets would be tearing their hair out. They'd have no words. They'd say, how can you think this way? I just had a piece about it. Feelings are unreliable. The word says so. You may think you're on the right road and still end up dead. Number two, you can't allow, this is if you're going to continue to be led by the Spirit, you can't allow yourself to be led by friends who aren't led by God. Again, for decades of ministry, I've seen this time and time again. People will start consulting other sources for where they think they're going to find their truth that's going to be leading them and making their life satisfied. And if they're not led by God, what do you think is going to be the result? What kind of information do you think is going to be coming back to them? We can't be led by a culture who is completely antagonistic to God and still find the truth that God has for us that he's put out there in abundance for us to find. Don't follow the crowd in doing wrong, it says in Exodus 23 too. That was one of Israel's biggest problems. That's what I picked up on a lot of through that winter Bible study and those prophets. Israel kept following the crowd. We want a king like that other neighboring country. Life will be better if we just get a king like them. We want to worship these idols like these guys have. You know, the Baal worshipers seem to be pretty successful. Maybe if we incorporate a little Baal worship into our worship, maybe things will get better. <laughs> when a Christian starts to listen to a culture that doesn't follow God, I've seen it again and again, they start looking for ways to justify their behavior. When they suddenly see something and think, you know, I like doing this, and therefore I have to try to find a way to make it justifiable in my own mind. And they start just basically kind of blacking out an awful lot of Scripture. And pretty soon they're just kind of ripping out whole pages because they can't believe what God's put in there for them because they feel guilty about what they're doing. Why do they feel guilty? Because they're guilty. There's a reason why God puts these things in our path. When we think about His commandments, think of them as guardrails. He's putting these guardrails up there so that we don't fall right off the road and go out into a field into destruction somewhere. And, but if we don't want that because we want to go out into the field for ourselves, we can remove the guardrail if we want to. But if we do that, we just start ripping all these guardrails apart and pretty soon our life is going to kind of a mess. Bones found this to be true. That was my nickname for him. I knew this guy named Bones. He thought I should have that nickname for myself because I played trombone. And I said, yeah, but that's your last name. So. <laughs> So I called him Bones, and I stole the nickname he was going to use for me. But he found that to be true. He said that he started trying to basically justify everything he wanted to do, and he was going into all these different locations and places and seeking, trying to get some advice. He went to Mormon missionaries. He went to a Buddhist temple, and he started going to the library, and he checked this out, and he checked that out. He was really expansive in his search. But he kept avoiding reading things about Christian truths. And I asked him one, one time, I said, why is that? Why wouldn't you just consult like the Bible and read that for a while? If you're going to be honest with all these things, why not read that and that and that and read the Word and make a comparison? See if there's any of this stuff that shakes out. So we had some lengthy discussions about that, and other people were speaking some truth into his life. And I'm grateful to say that good old Bones called me up one time after we had parted company. I probably hadn't seen him in over a year, and he said, it happened. So what happened? Did you get married? No, no, no. That's, that's not happened yet. And he said, but I, I found the truth. I said, no way. But tell me about it. And it, for him, it was just like road to Damascus experience. All the things that people had been telling him, all the things that he had finally started to read for himself, 
it's like that God stripped away all that veneer that he had built up for himself, and he realized that he was trying to justify his own actions. Why had he gone down that road in the first place? His brother had committed suicide, and his brother was his hero. And it pulled the rug right out from underneath him, and so his whole worldview just took a hit. Now, I understand grief does weird things to us. I understand that. I could see why he would have been motivated to look elsewhere because he felt at that time like he needed somebody to blame. And he would ask these tough questions like, if God is so good, why didn't he intervene? Good questions. But he found his answers. And when he finally found the answer, he said, it was just like the Apostle Paul. It was like God saying, why have you been persecuting me, brother? I'm here for you. I'm trying to show you how loving I am, and I've proven it to you already. Are you going to see me for who I really am? And Bones finally did see him. After years of struggle, Bones saw God differently because of the cross. Look at this verse. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Bones got it. He understood that his identity is found only in Jesus Christ. That's where his security lies. It started to shift everything because he started looking this direction. And because he was looking from God's motive, he saw everything he was looking at and how he looked at it differently. And I was so grateful for that. It made my day to know that Bones had found the Lord. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. You can't remove the cross from the center of the gospel because that's where we see God's love demonstrated as his love and his mercy and his justice all come together in one place. In order to be led by God's spirit, here are some you can do these. Those are things to avoid. These are things you can do. You have to want to be led. You have to want to be led. When I was a kid, we had a swimming pool out in our backyard. I lived in that pool in the summer months especially. I was in Phoenix. It was warm enough to do that. And I, we'd have midnight swims together because it would still be 80 degrees outside at midnight, and I swam all the time. Well, it was a four-foot deep pool with a little aluminum ladder that goes in. You know what, what they're like. And I used to try to, because I got a waterproof watch for my birthday one time, like about my ninth or tenth birthday, I used to sit under the water and try to time myself to see how long I could hold my breath. Well, I figured out that I could hold my breath longer if I didn't struggle to keep myself underwater. So I learned that I could tuck myself under the bottom rung of that ladder. And then I got to thinking, after about two and a half minutes, this may not be such a good idea. <laughs> because my head started to feel a little fuzzy and sparkly, and I started to have that tunnel thing where things started to look a little bit black. And I thought, yeah, I should probably pull myself out from underneath this ladder. <laughs> And I did, and when I hit the surface, and I had done three minutes, the only time in my life I can think that I did it, but I broke a three-minute mark of holding my breath, and I hit the surface, and it was like, <laughs> oh, 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 wow, I'd never wanted air so bad in all my life. And Bones, in his testimony, says, that's what my life got to be like. I cried out to God because I was desperate. I was so desperate that I thought, God, i got to have something because my life is drowning right now. And when he called out, he wanted to be led, and God answered him. My God, I want to do what you want. Your teachings are in my heart, so says the psalmist. That was Bone's heart. That's what can happen. If we want to get led, God will lead. Second, you have to let God change the way you think. We've talked about this numerous times here because it's in the mind that all these things take place. 
Don't copy the behavior or the values of this world. Instead, let God transform you, putting on this whole new character. Let him transform you into a new person by changing the way you think, Romans 12. Then third, you have to be willing to do what God says. I love what Francis Chan says on this subject. He's the author of Crazy Love, and I watched a YouTube video of him preaching. And he said, somebody asked me, Pastor Francis, um, there are some people who are trying to do things right now that you say from the word they shouldn't be doing because it's what the culture thinks should be doing. Has living in San Francisco, as long as you lived there, has it changed the way you view these people or their sin? He said, let me be very cautious how I answer this. If anything, it's made me more compassionate for people. And if anything else, it's made me more secure than ever in the Jesus who can change hearts. And he said, without getting specific about any one sin, because all sin is sin, as Mike preached about, without getting into any specifics, I would say to them, whatever that thing is, fill in your blank. You know, God, I don't want to give this up because, you know, fill in the blank. He would say, if God told me, Francis, he comes from a Chinese-American background, and Francis said, what if God were to say, I am making a commandment that Chinese-Americans have to stand on their head. He said, I know that sounds weird, but I'm trying to show you my heart in this matter. He said, he's God. I'm going to try to figure out how to stand on my head. I may have a headache, but I'm going to do it. Why? Because he's God. Because he loves me more than any human being on this earth could possibly because he's my creator and he loves me. He loves me enough to give himself up for me. So I'm going to give that up knowing that God has something for me. Yeah, it's going to be painful to give some of this stuff up. Yes, yes, I get it. But he's God. And I resonated with that because I want so badly to be compassionate in sharing that truth, but I don't ever want to give up truth that the Holy Spirit leads us to share. Because that's where we find salvation, is through that truth. That's where we find eternity, forever, with God. Fourth, you need to look to God's Word. Most of God's will is already revealed to us. It's already revealed, and it's in God's Word. Now, sometimes it's not going to be so specific. You know, I've had a couple of people say, well, is the name of my spouse going to appear in the Word? And I said, well, not to everybody. It, it did to me, fortunately, because in Isaiah, it says, you shall go out with joy. <laughs> but the principles for how you can find a right spouse is in God's Word. Everything we know for leading an abundant life is in God's Word. I don't have a pulpit to pound on, so I thought I would make my gestures a little more serious about that. I say that because, man, we'll look to so many other sources before we start looking there to figure out how can my life become better. God's already revealed it to us, and it's in His Word. He's not going to show me something new and improved when I haven't even acted on what He's already revealed to me. I love what Henry Blackaby says about that. He says, if you're looking for a next assignment, God may ask, have you completed the first assignment I gave you? Because if you haven't, if you're walking in disobedience right now, how do you expect God to bless your life? You have to turn from that disobedience, whatever that is. Again, fill in the blank. Face this direction. See God through the lens of His love for us as seen on the cross because He loved us enough to die for our sins and then start becoming obedient to what He asks you to do. 
and all of a sudden the have to becomes a want to, the perspective changes from the kind of God you thought he might have been to the God you know him to be. The scales fall away, and like my buddy Bones discovered, God loves you, and he does have a wonderful plan for your life if you will submit and want to be led by him. Let's pray together. Father, I am just desperate to share the good news because I've seen people like my buddy Bones who found such freedom in Jesus Christ. And I pray that I will do so and I pray that our church will be the kind of church that will do so in such a compassionate, loving, caring method that we can't be faulted for our methodology. And I want to be unwavering in the truths that are there for us in God's Word that have remained firm ever since your Word came out and it's standing the test of time. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I want to be led by Him. And I pray that many others will want to be led by Him as well. As we look into your Word to discover how, and as we get to know you, and as we put on that new character, that new nature, because of the garment of righteousness that Christ puts on each of us, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, who made it possible. Amen.